I gotta tell you, I always love it when a crowd claps for me before I preach. It's kind of scary. Clayton King here, glad to be back at Journey Church International. Listen, all is well in the world. If you haven't been paying attention, not only is Christmas right around the corner, but they're playing Burl Ives and Bing Crosby on every station you tune to. And the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. I lobbed the softball underhanded. Y'all should hit that out of the park. If you can't get excited about that, and here's something we all can agree on, is that the Clemson Tigers are ranked number one in the nation, 13-0 and 0 for the first time since 1981. Now, there are some who would argue, and these people are evil, wicked doers who do not know God. Some would argue, as they were on ESPN this morning, that the Alabama Crimson Tide should be ranked number one. <clears throat> I just want to prove how felonious that argument is because not only did Clemson win all of our games, not only did Alabama lose a game, not only did Clemson beat three teams who were ranked in the top 10 and Alabama beat none, but I was having my quiet time this morning and God told me Clemson was his favorite college football team. <laughs> Booyah, all is well in the world. High five your neighbor and say, this preacher's crazy. Just go ahead and do that right now. This preacher's crazy. Well, I'm really glad to be here this morning. Um, I've got my wife with me on the front row. Her name is Shari, and she's been with me every year that we've come to visit you and preach for you. And she'll be with me tonight at the True Love Waits event that we're doing. I hope all of you uh, that have a student will come. Uh, parents are invited. Teenagers are invited. I hope you'll all be there. We're excited about sharing that time with you tonight. And I just want to tell uh, Danielle and Christian how much I love and appreciate you guys. I I I'm not kidding when I say that Pastor Christian and Danielle have become two of the very best friends that Shari and I have ever had in our lives. Not only does Christian pastor and shepherd you as a congregation, but he's also a pastor to me. He's a friend and a pastor and a brother that I trust. If I was going to be in a foxhole and I needed somebody to get my back, I'd want you in the foxhole with me. I love you, Shari, and I love your family. Thank you for being a great great man of God and being the pretty much the most handsome 53-year-old guy I've ever met in my life, right? Or 52, sorry, I'm just messing. I think that uh, Pastor Christian introduced me previously, maybe last week as a redneck, and I just wanna make sure that you understand I am not a redneck. There is a difference between a redneck and a country boy. I am a country boy because I do not drink Budweiser, I do not dip snuff, and I hate NASCAR. So I'm a country boy, but because I'm a country boy, one of the things I love about coming to Journey Church every year is that as soon as we get here, we go to the hotel, we check in, and then Pastor Christian and Danielle pick us up, and they take us somewhere where we can get the biggest piece of cooked dead cow on planet earth. These are some meat Atarians, and I love it because I'm a Christian. I love meat. Now, if you don't eat meat and you're a vegetarian, you can still be a Christian as long as you pass your portion of steak on to this boy right here. Can we all say amen? amen? All right. Well, I've only got three and a half hours to preach this message, so I should probably go. You know, the good thing about coming to the second service is I can preach until the Chiefs play. Do the Chiefs play today? How are they doing this year? Pretty good? All right. Well, pray for me because I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And you can boo if you want to because we're in a rebuilding decade. Um, Hey, I want to I wanna do this. I, I, we're in a series uh, called The Season of Hope, and, and I don't know about you, but 
I've always loved Christmas. And now that I've got a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, I love it even more. As a matter of fact, this next week on our to-do list as a family, Shari and I are going to have to order or go purchase Christmas decorations. We haven't decorated yet, but our 10-year-old is uh, excited about decorating for Christmas. And it's crazy how when the Christmas season rolls around, you have all these memories of your childhood. I don't know about you, but for me, the smell of a certain food Walking into a house that's got a real Christmas tree, an evergreen tree or a cedar tree, and smelling that smell will bring me back to my childhood. Uh, I always loved Christmas because I lived in a home that was full of love. I was adopted when I was about two and a half weeks old, and uh, I've always been very thankful for my mom and dad, and my mom and dad loved Christmas. My mom cooked a tremendous amount of food, and my grandmother and my grandfather would always show up, and we would spend the entire day together, and we would always enjoy being together as a family. And for some of us, Christmas is, like the song says, the most wonderful time of the year. But for others of us, this is a hard season to find hope. Because Christmas reminds you of days past and people that you've lost or hard times that you've been through. For some of us, Christmas is a depressing time. As a matter of fact, I read a statistic just this past week, about three or four days ago, where they have uh, proven that Christmas is the, is the time of year when most people experience real depression and when most people contemplate taking their own life. And so the question then for me was, why could a time, and why, why is it for so many of us that a time of year that should be filled with so much joy and so much hope and so much happiness be a time that so many of us struggle to find hope? And I want to tell you that I understand what that feels like. I'm going to share today my story of the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life just to let you know that you're not alone if you ever, ever struggle to find hope, especially in the Christmas season. You know, I don't know many of you. I've met a lot of you the two or three years I've been coming to preach here. But there's one question that I could ask you if we had a chance to go get a cup of coffee, if we had a chance to eat a meal together as a family, if I was in your living room or you were in our dining room at my house, there's one question that really does kind of cut through all of the superficiality that really gets people to a place of intimacy and transparency. If I could ask you this question, I wonder what your response would be. Just imagine it with me. You don't have to answer it. But in your heart, you won't be able to not answer this question. What is the most painful thing that you've ever gone through? A question like that changes the atmosphere in a room, doesn't it? A question like that really does cut through a lot of the superficiality and it gets us to a place of honesty. And if I were to ask you that question, like I've just asked you now, your mind probably automatically goes somewhere. For some of us, the most painful thing in our life brings back a memory from childhood. You know, the statistics tell us that in America now, it's about 25% of both male and females, if you average it out, 25% of Americans have been abused at some point in their life, physically or emotionally or verbally or even sexually. For some of you, if I ask, what is the most painful thing you've ever been through? Uh, you'd remember the divorce. You'd remember the affair. You'd remember the miscarriage. You'd think about the friendship that ended. You'd think about the business proposition that bankrupt you. You'd think about losing a job and you'd think about a time of depression and anxiety. Maybe you'd think about a time of sickness 
If you've ever had real chronic sickness that put you down for any number of of days, you probably remember what it felt like to wonder, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to get up out of this bed? Will I ever be able to live a normal life again? And here's the thing that I know about humans. Even though I may not know all of you personally as a close, intimate friend, I know that every single person in this room, and not just in this room, but in this country, and not just in this nation, but in this world, every one of us has gone through a hard time and everybody at some point in their life has needed hope and had to really search to find it. And I want to tell you that if that's you, welcome to the human race because we all experience those seasons of life. But what is it about Christmas sometimes that brings those memories, those feelings, and those emotions back to us? Of course, you know, at Christmas time, we're remembering our childhood. We're thinking about people we love. We want to be around family and friends. On the cover of USA Today on Friday's edition, I was reading it this morning. Uh, I woke up at 2 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. So I know what I'm talking about. When I talk about anxiety and I talk about sleeplessness, you'll understand in a little bit why I still struggle with that to some extent. But I was reading it today, uh, this morning, Friday's edition of USA Today on the cover of the newspaper said 87% of Americans would rather spend time with their family and get nothing for Christmas than to get all of their best gifts that they wish for, but have contention or nobody to share the holidays with. I want to share my story with you a little bit to help you understand that you can indeed find hope even in the hardest season of your life. And it's hard for me to share this story because I feel like I'm sort of peeling off a scab and letting people see the most painful part of my life. But when I went through this season of my life, I told God, I'll tell my story for your glory, but I want you to use my story to make people stronger. But before I tell you my story, I want to read a few verses to you from the scriptures so that you'll understand you're not the only one and I'm not the only one who has ever known real serious hardship and had to reach out for the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul who at one point in his life before he converted to faith in Jesus was someone who not only persecuted Christians, but he killed them. The first Christian martyr in the book of Acts was a young man named Stephen, and he was killed at the hands of a Jewish religious professional leader named Saul. Saul later becomes a follower of the Jesus he tried to persecute. And as he follows Jesus and becomes a Christian, You would imagine that for someone like Paul, who had all kinds of success in ministry, who planted churches all over the Mediterranean region, who wrote half of the New Testament, a man who literally saw the miraculous supernatural power of God in a regular way in his life, finds himself toward the end of his ministry struggling with real serious pain, real true weakness. But here's what I love about the Apostle Paul. He doesn't try to hide his weakness. He showcases it for a greater purpose. And I learned from reading some of the words of the Apostle Paul that even the greatest Christians, even the ones that we would look at and say, he or she has a great relationship with God. I wish I could be more like her. I wish I could sing like he sings. I wish I could preach like he preaches. I wish my kids were great like them. They have such a great Christian family. Even the people that we consider to be the strongest in their faith at their very core are just like the rest of us, weak with nothing to give and no strength on their own. 
Every single one of us has to, has to latch on to the hope of the gospel. And I want you to hear the hope of the gospel in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll begin reading in verse 23b. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in the second half of verse 23. Paul writes these words as he showcases his weakness and finds the hope in Christ. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. And then he mentions eight dangerous scenarios. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and I have often gone without sleep. I can relate to that. I have known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I can relate to that. I don't eat in between meals and it is so difficult. Anybody feel that? He says, I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul had not only known physical weakness, he not only carried physical scars on his body from the beatings he had endured for Jesus, but he knew emotional hardship because as a pastor, there was a different kind of weight and burden on his shoulders that no one else understood. I'll explain it in this example. If you're a mom or a dad, you know what it's like to worry about your own children. But until you have your children of your own, you can't know that feeling of lying in bed at night hoping your kids turn out to be normal and not an ax murderer that winds up on death row because they stole a school bus and were drinking pot and smoking beer when they got caught. Just trying to keep you engaged here, right? The Apostle Paul knew the, the emotional pressure of ministry. This is something that, that most people in this room cannot relate to, but Pastor Christian and Danielle know all too well. Shari and I know this all too well. I have uh, 10 people who work for, for us, and I carry the pressure of knowing if I say or do something stupid, my mistake can affect them. God forbid if I, if I go out and get drunk, if I go out and start doing drugs, if I, if I go to a strip club and lose my testimony in Jesus name, that's not going to happen. But if I, if I burn out a ministry, if I, if I step out of bounds, if I break the rules, if I cross that line, God will still forgive me. God will still love me. I can still be a Christian, but I carry the weight and burden of knowing there are people who depend on us and what we do as the leaders of our ministry in the same way that every pastor feels that burden. Paul is saying that burden makes me weak, but can any, anything good come out of that weakness? Is there any hope when we feel like we're underneath a burden too big to bear? He says in verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is tempted and I do not inwardly burn? Here's what Paul's doing. He is showcasing his hardship to show that there is hope in your hard times. He is opening up his weakness to his friends so that they will understand that he understands. He says in the next verse, verse 30, but if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
So here's where hope comes in when you're struggling. Here, here's where we find the hope of the gospel when we don't feel like putting on a happy face at Christmas time. Here's where we find the hope of Jesus Christ when the last thing we want to go do is hang out with our wife or our husband's in-laws and their crazy uncle that always shows up and you don't know if he's high or drunk or just born that way. Here's where we find the hope when we're afraid that we might lose our job or when we're afraid that the oncologist report might come back negative or when we're afraid that the cancer might return or when we are afraid that the marriage may not work out. We can boast in our weakness because our weakness shows his strength. When Paul opens up his heart and bears his soul and tells his story, everybody who read this letter 2,000 years ago found hope in Paul. But imagine how many people have read Paul's words over the last 2,000 years from the Bible. Right now in this room, hundreds of people can find hope by hearing Paul say, you're weak? Me too. You're discouraged? Me too. You're depressed? Me too. You can't sleep at night? Me either. You've gone without food? I've been broke too. You've had enemies that cut you down? I've had people try to kill me. You've known physical pain? They beat me across my back with a cat of nine tails five times, and I've got two inches of scar tissue on my back to prove what I have survived. How does it work that when we boast in our weakness... God's strength is somehow put on display. Well, let me give you an example. Um, I don't have a whole lot to brag about in my life. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty good dancer. Um, I got some really sweet moves. Uh, watch Napoleon Dynamite, and there's this one scene where he just goes off, and, and uh, my, my wife is the only one who ever sees those dance moves, and, uh, and, and you should praise God for that. And, uh, and she does too, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, put your hand up as a testimony. I'm just kidding. Thank you. I don't have much to brag about, but I do have this one thing that I can boast in. My sophomore year in high school, I was part of a football team that had a perfect record. Now, this was in the 1900s, y'all. Had a, had a perfect record. My sophomore year, I was the only 10th grader to start, and we were 0 and 11. Perfect record. Didn't win a game lost every single team we played. We lost to other varsity football teams. We lost to JV teams. We lost to Pop Warner third grade teams. We lost to an all-girls powder puff team. We were horrible. Now, why do I even tell that story? Am I actually bragging about that? Well, I'm not bragging about how great we were because we were terrible. We were the worst team that ever took a snap on a football field. But when I tell you my story of my weakness even though that's a silly example, it lets you know that you're not the only one that's ever felt like a loser. It lets you know that you're not the only one who's ever been embarrassed about something from your past. It's a way to break down the barrier. And what I decided I was gonna do to break down the barrier between me and the people I preach to, and I preach to hundreds of thousands of people a year, both live and on radio and on television, I just decided after I went through the worst season of my life, that I was gonna break down the barrier, that I was gonna break all the rules, that I wasn't gonna be the traditional pastor who gets up and fakes it and tries to pretend like I'm strong. I was just gonna tell my story for God's glory and see what God did with it. And I've been doing it for about the last five and a half months. I wrote a book about it, and it's the message I've been preaching since Father's Day. You'll understand in a few minutes why Father's Day was such an important day to me on the day that I not only released the book, but preached this sermon for the first time. 
I went through a season of my life where I could relate to a lot of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I could relate to the pain and the hopeless feeling of wondering if anything good would ever come out of these bad things. Over the course of 12 years, beginning in my late 20s, I lost nine family members. When I say I lost them, I don't mean we went to the mall and we got separated. I mean they died. My uncle was the first one that died. He was my great uncle, actually. Dropped dead of a heart attack in my backyard after going fishing in our farm pond. Not long after that, my grandmother died. She had survived World War II. She had survived the Great Depression. Uh, She had raised three children by herself because her husband, my grandfather that I never met because he died before I was born and adopted, walked out on their family when my daddy was 10 years old. My dad was a 10-year-old kid who sat by the window in their house every single night after dinner for six months waiting on his dad to come home, and his dad never came back. So my uncle dies, my grandmother dies, then my grandfather died. He dropped dead of a heart attack. He was a World War II vet who fought in the South Pacific. And then not long after that, another one of my family members died. When about number four died, I started asking some really hard questions. As a preacher, as an ordained minister, as as somebody who had uh, 20 years, at this point now today, 28 years of ministry experience, I started doubting God. Can I say that? Can I say that? Can I tell you as a preacher, I started to wonder what the heck God was up to. I'm just being honest with you. I hope you can handle the truth. God, do you still care about what happens to me? Do you care about how I feel? Do you know that my family members are dropping like flies? Do you know that I'm preaching every one of their funerals and I'm tired of it? And then I used to judge people who used to say things like, I have depression. And I used to say stupid stuff to people when they would say that they were depressed. I would say stupid things like, you should pray more. You should read your Bible more. You should go to church more often. Maybe you're not tithing enough. If you would go on a mission trip to a third world country, you'd feel really good about how good you've got it here because you'd see how bad they've got it there. I think I didn't really believe in depression until I became depressed. I never really had a bad day, but I didn't want to get out of bed for days at a time. And then there were moments where I would just break down and start crying for no reason. Six foot three, 235 pound grown man. And I would just begin to cry and weep and cry and weep. And then somebody told me, crying is good for you. It's kind of like emotional sweating. And I was like, okay, I can live with that. Because the more I would cry, the better I would feel. But I would want to cry more. Why? Because I was handling, I was living in, I was underneath the weight of a situation I could not control. And when my fifth family member died, I realized control is an illusion. None of us is in control of the future. None of us is in control of the outcomes of our lives. None of us can control the bad relationship, the sickness, the disease, the financial problem. We want to, but it takes a a hard time to make us look to God for hope because a lot of us will try to find hope in our own abilities until we come up against something we can't fix. And then five years ago this month, On a Thursday afternoon, I went to visit my mom and dad. My dad was terminally ill, heart disease, diabetes, heart failure, neuropathy. My dad was taking 19 prescription medications a day to stay alive. He was on dialysis every other day. My mom was caring for my terminally ill father. When I went to see them on a Thursday in November of 2010, as I was leaving, I said goodbye to my mom, but her face looked, her color was off. And I said, Mama, are you, uh, 
are you sick? She said, oh yeah, a lot worse than you know. I said, well, what's wrong? She said, I can't tell you because if I tell you, you'll try to put me in the hospital and I've got to take care of your dad because he's going to die soon. I said, Mom, we can get you some help. She said, no, I made a covenant and I made a promise and I made a vow. I'm staying with your dad until he dies. I said, Mom, we can get you some medical help. We can get some help in the house with dad. You need to get well. What is wrong with you? She wouldn't tell me. She said, a lot that you don't know. And then she paused. I don't know if it was a premonition, a lucky guess, or if God told her. But she said, y'all are going to find me laying dead in the middle of the kitchen floor one day really soon. And you'll know that stress and anxiety and worry killed me. It was Thursday at 2.30. Sunday at 4 o'clock, four days later, I called her from the airport in Charlotte on my way to Toronto, Canada. Talked to her for 10 minutes, got on the plane, landed in Toronto several hours later, turned on my phone and got the message that my mom had dropped dead of a heart attack in the middle of the kitchen floor. Four days after she had predicted it. And I spent the worst, most lonely night of my life in a hotel room in another country. Couldn't get out till the next morning, no flights back home. And I got on my knees beside that bed in that airport hotel in Toronto and I asked God a different kind of question. God, are you really good? Are you really in control? Can you really heal my heart? What am I going to do without my mom? What's my dad going to do without his wife? Who's going to take care of my dad? I don't know what it's like to live in a world without my mom. And I flew home the next morning. My mom died on a Sunday. Three days later, I preached her funeral. Two days later, it was Thanksgiving. Two days after that was my birthday. Three days after that was her birthday. Three days after that was my brother's birthday. And three weeks later was Christmas. So can I just be honest with y'all right now and tell you, I love Christmas most of the time, but sometimes I would just rather skip it. Can I just be honest and tell you that there are moments, and they come and they go, but there are moments where I have to dig for hope. There are moments where I have to open up the Bible and I have to cry out to God and say, I know you're real. I don't feel you right now, but I've got faith that you're there. Lord, please make my faith stronger than my fear. Please make my faith stronger than my feelings. And every single time I go to God, every single time I open up his word, every single time I cry out to him, every single time I open up my heart with my wife or a friend like Pastor Christian, somehow, every single time, and it may not happen the way I thought it would, and it may not feel the way I thought it would feel, but every single time, my God is faithful to his word, and he gives me the hope to take one more step, to take one more breath, to make it one more day, and he reminds me that I am not living for what I can see and feel right now. My hope is in a God who is bigger than death. My hope is in a world to come where he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and there will be no more pain and no more suffering and none of us will shed another tear. Y'all can say amen and clap if you want to because I think I'm preaching pretty doggone strong right now. Somebody needs to hang on to this. Listen, I need something to sink my teeth into in this world. I need more than Netflix and Instagram. I need more than nice little truisms on a Starbucks coffee cup. I need more than some bench uh, philosopher on the sidelines telling me, I said bench, B-E-N-C-H, bench, bench. 
I saw the look on your face. You were like, I like this preacher. <laughs> bench, B-E-N-C-H, like on the sidelines, sitting on the bench. We will never forget this moment at this church. Watershed moment for Journey Church International. We good? I need more than somebody on the sidelines telling me when the world gives you lemons, make lemonade. No, I need a God who's stronger than death. I need a God who can kick death in the teeth. I need a God who can punch the grave in the throat and knock it out forever. I need a God who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you'll see greater things than you've ever imagined. So for the next 18 months after I preached my mom's funeral, I took care of my dying dad. It was the hardest season of my life. I'd wake up in the morning, 2 a.m., heart rate through the roof, ringing wet with sweat, panic attacks. I'm an, I'm an extreme extrovert. I love people. I'll be at my book table till the last person walks away today. But I got to the point where I didn't want to be around people, didn't want to talk to people, didn't want to answer questions. I did not want anybody to ask me how I was doing because I didn't want to have to tell them again, you don't want to hear what I got to say. But I'm really struggling. I didn't want to. 18 months later, after feeding my dad, shaving my dad, brushing his hair, brushing his teeth, rubbing diabetic cream on his feet, eventually putting him in a nursing home because he was to the point he literally could not even hold a coffee cup. I got the phone call at 5.20 a.m. I just stepped away from him for a few hours thinking he would live through the weekend and they called me at 5.20 a.m. My alarm was set to go off at 5.30 when my iPhone rang and they said, come quickly, your dad's fading fast. And by the time we got there, actually before I could even get my family out the door to the nursing home, they called and said, your father just died. And I preached my dad's funeral on Father's Day. And I lost nine family members in 12 years. So if you could think about a child who starts first grade and then imagine all through elementary, middle school, and high school to their senior year. That's 12 years. And those 12 years were some of the hardest days because I averaged preaching a funeral every 16 months. And the very last member of my family to pass away was not my dad, it was his sister. She was my Aunt Gwen, like a second mom to me. I want to show you how God's hope can come out of nowhere when you are just about to give up. I want to show you that there is more than a happy ending to a hard story. There is a promise of an eternity with a God who will make all things right. I was getting on an airplane to go preach in Ohio. And I got a phone call from my uncle that my aunt was dead. She was like a second mom to me. She was my dad's sister. She was one of the best women I'd ever known. And I took out my journal and I wrote some things by hand in my journal that eventually became the beginning for the book where I would tell the whole story of how I found hope in hard times. Here's some things I wrote in my journal that day. I hope they'll encourage you. Hard times don't make me happy, but by God's grace, they can keep me humble and make me holy. I should probably say that again. Hard times don't make me happy, but by God's grace, they can keep me holy and make me humble. Where there's no death, there can be no re resurrection. Where there's no cross, there can be no empty tomb. I wrote this in my journal that day. Peace isn't the absence of crisis in my life. It's the presence of Christ in the crisis of my life. Just because I feel invisible, it doesn't mean I'm not valuable. 
I wrote this down. God works in our weakness because it's all he has to work with. Before every triumph, there's a trial. Before every testimony, there's a test. I can't stop when I feel stuck. I have to keep moving forward in faith that Jesus is stronger. I wrote this down. If I'm not dead, God's not done. And that was the one phrase the Spirit of God gave me that day that filled me with hope. I looked around at all the people in my family who had died. My mom is dead. My dad is dead. I'm an orphan before I'm 40 years old. My aunt is dead. My uncle is dead. All my grandparents are dead. But I'm not. I've got an amazing wife who is my partner in ministry. I've got two amazing children that God has blessed me with. I'm not dead, so I'm not done. And I, and, and I realized that what I was going through was God preparing me for what he was calling me to. I, I can't teach you math because I, I stink at it. I can't really talk to you about differential equations or space exploration, but I can talk to you about losing somebody. And I can listen to a person when their heart is broken in depression. And I can sit there, leaned in across a coffee table. And I can say to somebody after they have poured their guts out and said, I did not know what to do. And I can say, me too, you're going to make it. Me too, you're going to make it. When somebody tells me, I didn't know if God was still taking care of my life and even if he still loved me, I can say, guess what? I have been through that and I'm on the other side and I promise you, God loves you. And if you don't have enough faith to believe that, borrow some of mine. Because I have built my faith through some crazy fears. And I wrote this down too. Faith replaces fear, but not without a fight. And this is where we find hope that Jesus in his darkest moment could have easily said, I'm out. I'm not dying on the cross for the very people that want to kill me. But Jesus stuck it out. And because he died in your place and my place, we have hope. We have faith and we have love. I want to leave you with two thoughts. I've learned that my scars tell my story. So I'm going to tell it for God's glory. Your scars tell your story. Did you know that? I got scars all over my body. I'm a guy. I'm a country boy. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I've got scars. <laughs> I got a scar on my left elbow where a fire blew up on me in 2005. I've got a scar on my left calf where I was running from a farmer. I was trespassing on his property, bass fishing in one of his ponds. My dad said, if you go to old man Hinton's farm, he'll shoot at you. I was 13, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I thought, let's see, and he did. He shot at me, and I ran, run, Forrest, run. I ran like the wind, ran into a barbed wire fence in the middle of the woods, sliced my leg wide open. So when I was at college, and all the guys in my college dorm my freshman year are like, here's my scar where I fell off a skateboard. Oh, yeah, well, here's my scar where I got a rug burn from wrestling my little sister. I'm like, are you kidding me? Here's my scar from a rusty, jagged barbed wire fence where a crazy old man tried to shoot me with a high-powered rifle in the dark. <laughs> you know what happens when we, when we show our scars and tell our stories? You know what happens, right? When we, when we show our scars and we tell our stories, people lean in to listen because they want to know how we made it. They want to know how we survived. They want to know how the story ends. So your scars tell your story. In Galatians six seventeen, at the end of his letter, Paul says, 
do not cause me any trouble because I bear on my body the scars of Christ. And I believe when he wrote that letter, he had at least an inch, maybe two inches of scar tissue across his back where he had been beaten with the cat of nine tails five times and lived to tell about it. Your scars tell your story. So don't waste them. I know you've gone through hard times and I know that you've suffered, but there is hope that God can redeem your greatest regret, that that God doesn't waste your weakness. It's his way that he works in you. God doesn't waste my weakness. It's the way he works in me. Do you know how? Because I didn't realize Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. And that's the thought I wanna leave you with to give you the hope that you need to keep going and push through. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. There is a beautiful lesson that we learn when we don't know where to look for hope and then Jesus is right there beside us. Because I'll be honest with you guys, I wouldn't want to repeat what I went through. And that hardest thing that you've ever gone through, that most painful experience that you've ever had, the one I asked you about at the beginning of the message, You wouldn't want to repeat that again if you could choose. If you could go back and live your life again, we would all rather have an exemption from our hard times. But guess what? Nobody gets an exemption. But we get something better. We get a companion. I'd pick a companion over an exemption any day. I'd rather have Jesus walk with me through my hard times by my side than to live my whole entire life and never know struggle alone. You don't get an exemption from hard times, but you get a companion that will never leave you. And that is hope. And nobody can take that hope away from us. And I believe somebody needs that hope today. And I believe that God brought some of you here for the very specific purpose of seeing a preacher stand up on the stage and be as transparent with his pain as he could possibly be to let you know, me too, you're gonna make it. I've been there and I didn't get over it, but I'm getting through it. And there is hope in Jesus and Jesus is here for you.